0: Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I talked to Alex Press, staff writer at Jacobin, about Amazon's ruthless exploitation of its workforce, its deeply embedded culture of union busting, and its avoidance of basic labour regulation in its mission to become the everything store, as well as how workers are coming together to resist the company thanks so much to all our amazing patrons who make the show possible if you want access to the full hour-long episode of this show as well as full-length interviews with previous guests like naomi klein and dr cornell west please do support us on patreon at patreon.com slash a world to win pod there's a link in the description if you want to support the show in another way please give us a rating on itunes and share your favorite episodes on social media tagging at a world to win pod on twitter facebook and instagram A big thank you to Reverend and The Makers, who've let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. And now here is Alex Press on how and why Amazon has grown so powerful during the pandemic. Hello, Alex Press, and thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Yeah, you know, not bad. Can't complain. Good. Today, I want us to talk about something that you've written about extensively um, and very well. And we'll put some links to some of Alex's articles in the description, which is the case of Amazon. So I want to talk a little bit today about kind of the attempts to organize Amazon workers, again, about which you've written a, a great deal. But can we start by just talking a little bit about why and how Amazon has done so well and expanded so much over the course of the pandemic?
1: Yeah, so that's a big question, because Amazon has basically taken over um, a huge chunk of the economy, both globally, but especially in the United States over the past year. So Amazon at the start of the pandemic was already, you know, on still growing, um, still one of the largest companies, largest employers in the United States. But as one financial analyst put it, the pandemic has acted like a growth hormone for Amazon. So, you know, in the US, as people were Locked down, they turned to shopping online, not only for, you know, goods or even groceries, but for everything, you know, you can get just about anything you need from Amazon at this point and you can get it delivered very quickly. And, you know, as the pandemic, um, you know, devastated the country, people who could did stay home. Certainly, I was in New York City during the height of, you know, when things were really bad and it was scary to go outside and I did see the appeal of why people would turn to Amazon for everything. Right. And so as that happened, you know, the retail competition for Amazon started shutting down much of it permanently, you know, tens of thousands of smaller businesses have closed in the United States, um, for good. And so, Again, all of those dollars then started going to Amazon. So it was a mix of factors. You know, some of these companies that were brick and mortar stores had to shutter anyway because people weren't coming in and they weren't allowed to come in; they couldn't operate. But then that perpetuated this cycle of the dollars going to Amazon. And it's really interesting in the sense that so much of the money that went out as stimulus checks to people in this country ended up in Amazon's coffers. So in a sense, you know, it's it's been like a funnel for Amazon. Um, and what we've seen. The result of that is that Amazon has gone on a hiring spree unlike anything we've seen in this country for by a private employer in a very long time. Um, the New York Times tried to find, you know, a historical example, an analog to this hiring spree, and they thought it was sort of the airplane carrier factories, you know, that building the airplanes um, at the height of World War II. That was the only sort of analog of the hiring spree you would get. Um, so at this point, you know, they've added, they have over a million employees um, worldwide um, and they've seen, you know, their profits jump by an enormous amount. And again, this this was already one of the largest companies um, in the country. Um, and of course, Jeff Bezos, it goes without saying, has seen, uh, you know, t- I can't remember the number at this point, but over something like 50 billion extra dollars added to his estimated wealth. Um, and of course, he has stepped down now as the CEO, though he'll still Be playing a big role in the company. But so that's the Amazon story. You know, it's been, I was already writing about Amazon before the pandemic, and now it feels like I'm living inside of Amazon, like (laughs) the country has been swallowed up whole.
0: Do you think this is going to be a permanent development to have that many workers and for people to be relying on Amazon for so much stuff is obviously a huge transformation? Lots of small businesses going under, of course, kind of aiding and abetting that and Amazon increasingly being able to kind of sell its own products and direct users towards those products. To what extent do you think this is sustainable or does it reflect just a kind of change in market conditions during the pandemic? I think it's hard to
1: change this once it happens, right? Like the mm. the patterns sort of get dug in. Um, So the behaviors that we're all getting used to, we come to rely on, but also, you know, the infrastructure follows these changes. Right. And so, you know, as there's less competition, Amazon gets better at providing all of the things that people, you know, used to only be able to get elsewhere. And so there's sort of this cycle that's going on that I think is sort of etching Amazon deep into the infrastructure of this country. And I mean, there's some truth to the opposite kind of theory here that things might change as the pandemic sort of slows down and as things open up, certainly people do like having stores in their, you know, towns and cities. um, And it's very alienating to just completely stay at home all the time. But I think if Amazon has its way, this will only go on even further. You know, they're projecting continued growth. I don't think they're getting ready for this to abate anytime soon. Um, The other question is whether people can change it, you know, workers or at the political level. Obviously, there's a lot of conversation about antitrust measures on Amazon. um, But also, you know, as you referenced in introducing me, there's a lot of talk about the working conditions, especially in Amazon's warehouses, um, of which it has over 100 in the United States, as well as smaller sortation centers and delivery centers as well as its many, many contracted delivery drivers and so on and so forth. So it's an army of workers um, that are employed in some fashion, whether directly or indirectly by Amazon. And if those workers can actually win better working conditions, that too might change Amazon's business model.
0: Bezos has said many times before that he wants Amazon to become the everything store. And this is obviously, you know, something that does seem to have, um, like you said, you know, acted as a growth hormone to that vision during the pandemic. Do you think that that's a realistic goal for Amazon to have and what might be the implications of having you know an economy in which there was such a powerful monopoly with so much control over not just our consumption but also as you mentioned there the kind of infrastructure that makes american capitalism function and in fact global capitalism
1: Yeah I mean I think it's certainly a not a surprising slogan for a company to have, you know, Mm -hmm. whether it's realistic or the downsides is a separate part of your question. But, you know, Bezos has been very consistent in his vision for many years. And I think, you know, he's taken the the benefits the pandemic has provided him in the company and run with them. You know, there have been stories about Amazon wanting to get a foot in the door about distribution of the vaccine or helping in other sort of critical infrastructure projects during a public health crisis. And that is not because Jeff Bezos is a magnanimous person. It's because, again, it's about getting Amazon deep into the marrow of society um, so that it can't be taken out. Right. And so I think, you know, the everything store may mean something a lot more broad, overarching than sort of we envision it even now. Um, It may, in fact, mean replacing certain functions of the state even more than Amazon Mm. already has. Um, And I think on the labor side, it is a really it's a useful way to think about Amazon's effect on the economy um, in that Amazon doesn't just affect the working conditions of the doesn't just affect workers lives who are employed by the company or even who are in its exact industry. It also because it's such a massive employer with such a. Sort of leading role in setting standards um, of what people can expect in this country. It actually has an effect on working conditions, I think, across many industries. Um, You know, once things are accepted as common practice at Amazon facilities, they become accepted as sort of the way we live our lives as workers in general. Um, And so There's obvious effects about Amazon sort of, you know, squeezing unionized delivery workforces, things like that, you know, adjacent industries and its own industry driving down conditions and pay at warehouses. But there's also just a more generalized effect that if Amazon is your sort of key employer in your area, you get used to working a job that destroys your body, right? And that has an effect long after even, you know, you leave Amazon and find a different job or something like that. You know, it really has this you know, I'm wouldn't say questions about monopoly or monopsony in the labor market, but it does have that sort of an effect in a lot of areas where it becomes the dominant mode of what working life is like. Um, and in that sense, it really is, yes, the everything store. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, as far as what that might look like for, you know, down the line unintended effects or, or consequences of, of one sort of entity determining these things, um, I think it's hard to say. I'm not sure that we've ever had exactly anything like this as far as an employer that not just employs so many people, but also sort of controls so many different types of markets um, and just plays such an outsized role at the political level. I mean, Amazon has platoons of lobbyists in D.C. setting policy standards and also recruiting people to then come work for it after. So it is really reshaping I think the political conditions that we exist in, in general, right, and in, mm. in ways that are very hard for people to see, um, which is part of what's really, you know, difficult. I think about
0: talking about Amazon. That's a really interesting point about the kind of Amazonification of the labor market and the uh, transferal of the conditions that are faced by Amazon workers to other sectors. You know, you kind of alluded to how horrific those conditions are there, but can you talk a little bit more about? you know, what it is actually like to work for Amazon, whether that's in a warehouse or in logistics or, you know, whatever, like, what does the average day look like? And what are some of the worst, the most egregious abuses that have come to light recently?
1: Yeah. um, So, you know, the one that got the most attention in recent weeks is an old story, actually, that was reported by a British journalist a few years ago. Um, I think his name is James Bloodworth which was about workers at Amazon having to pee in bottles mm. because they didn't have time to go to the bathroom. Um, so that got a lot of attention recently, um, mostly because Amazon made the mistake of publicly saying that that doesn't happen, <laughs> which, of course, goaded many intrepid journalists to say, actually, it does and prove it with many sources. Um, and so, you know, that story was that James had worked in an Amazon warehouse in the UK um, and had witnessed several of his co-workers um, peeing in bottles rather than having to walk the very far distance to a bathroom um, because at Amazon, a key factor or a key way that work is experienced is down to the second that you're tracked at every second. Um, and the company calls it time off task, how much time you're spending doing anything that isn't picking or ship packing, things like that. Um, and so when that's the case and your warehouse is the size of you know say it's a million square feet, It doesn't surprise me that some people would prefer not to waste their time going to the bathroom. Um, This also, of course, is even more common among the delivery driving Mm. workforce, um, which is, you know, Amazon itself in defending itself said, actually, this is a problem for delivery drivers everywhere, as if that gets it off (laughs) scot-free as one of the largest employers of delivery drivers and also the most highly advanced surveillance company as far as surveilling one's workforce. Um, So, yes, workers that do delivery, both pee in bottles, but also reporters found are are frequently defecating into in the vans to the point that Amazon knows this is a problem. It's a common practice. Um, So that's one thing that's like particularly, you know, sort of shocking. Um, The more quotidian day to day experience of working, say, in one of these warehouses is that you're being, you know, again, tracked by an app, there's an algorithm that is making sure you are not deviating from the task at hand that you've been assigned to the point that, you know, Amazon workers often talk about feeling dehumanized that they're being treated as robots. Mm. And of course, Amazon is on the front lines of introducing robots into its warehouses. Now, that both poses a real threat for these workers who feel like they're witnessing their own jobs be automated. um, But it also those warehouses have much higher rates of injury than yeah. those without that aren't so roboticized. Um, so a key part again of working in one of these warehouses, robots or not, is that Amazon, at least in the United States has nearly twice the level of serious injury rates as other warehouse companies. Um, and so these are very dangerous places to work. Um, it's not just dehumanizing, it's actually you know a huge risk to your health to work in these places. One thing that I found, Really useful as a way to make sense of this is something that Jennifer Bates, um, who was one of the leading workers at the warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama, where there was a union campaign, um, something she said in an interview during the union vote was that during, you know, in the United States, um, labor law, maybe we'll go into it, but is completely stacked against workers at every stage. Mm. Um, And so these workers were holding a vote with the National Labor Relations Board about unionizing their warehouse. And as part of that process, the employer can do all sorts of things to scare workers away from unionizing. And one of the most common things is um, they make workers go into meetings with management, um, which are called captive audience meetings. So imagine you're this worker who has every second of their shift timed and they can't do anything. They can't take breaks, so on and so forth. And yet all of a sudden you're being told every day that you have to spend hours. All of a sudden you have all this time to listen to your manager talk about why you shouldn't unionize. Mm. And one thing Jennifer said was that, you know, these managers always are lying in these meetings. This is common practice to just make things up. Amazon managers have been caught lying in these meetings before. And um, this manager was saying, you know, if you unionize, it's going to get in the way of the relationship we have, the relationship you have with the company. Mm. And that's a common line, of course, that the union is a third party that's going to get in the way. And Jennifer said in the interview, you know, that was ridiculous. I don't have a relationship with Amazon. Mm -hmm. I have a relationship with an app. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, it did kind of cut against um, how these things work to even sort of suppose that, unionizing isn't a good idea because you have a human relationship with your manager or some sort of management is undercut by the incredibly brutal and, you know, algorithmically determined situation of these workers. Um, And so it's an interesting thing that that's how mediated down technologically these jobs are. And so, yeah, I think that gives a good sense. And, you know, I've said this in my writing before that it's not just the warehouse workers who have bad working conditions Mm. or even just the delivery drivers as well you know, Amazon now has a fleet of airlines that it uses to transport goods. Those pilots have complained about having, you know, not enough time for breaks, having poor working conditions. Um, And the white collar workers as well at Amazon frequently complain about the working culture. You know, there was there have been exposés about how often these workers are crying at their desks about high turnover rates. And again, these are very well paid people um, who are not, you know, shipping and and picking in a warehouse. um, But in fact, they're working, you know, in a very nice uh, job. And yet they still leave because the culture is just ruthless. As Jeff Bezos has always put it, he always says, this is day one at Amazon. That's always been his slogan, which means, you know, we're just getting started um, and there's no time to take a break. And I think, you know, he bears that out for every segment of his workforce. They experience
0: those conditions on the shop floor. You mentioned that what happened in Bessemer, Alabama. Could you just tell us a little bit more about what happened there and what it tells us about uh, Amazon's hardcore union busting culture?
1: Sure. So, you know, the brief facts of the matter that the workers in this new warehouse that had opened in March of 2020 um, very quickly decided they wanted to unionize. Um, So they reached out to a union that has some strength in the area, particularly at poultry processing plants. Um, The union is RWDSU. Um, And so within a few months, um, some of the workers had reached out and said, we need to unionize. Their complaints were the complaints that other Amazon workers have, which is, you know, there's high turnover. People are being fired because they can't keep up with these unfair quotas. um, I feel dehumanized, so on and so forth. And they very quickly got to the point of going public with this union. Um, They filed for an election. And because it was a pandemic, it was um, the the National Labor Relations Board determined to have a mail-in voting period instead of in-person voting. Um, So I think it was February 8th the voting started on unionizing. And it was the votes were due back by, I believe, March 29th. And during that time, it was about 5,800 workers were determined to be in the voting unit. So it was, if should they unionize, it would be almost 6,000 people in that union, which in the context of the American South and the deep South, um, Alabama is a right to work state. So it's you know a very anti-union place. That would be quite a big union success to unionize 6, 000, a 6,000 person workplace. Um, ultimately, what happened when the votes were counted is that Amazon won. Um, So I believe the vote count was 738 votes in favor of unionizing and um, maybe I think it was 1,800 votes against. Now, that's definitely like a blowout. It was a real loss for the union. Amazon challenged many, many votes that were votes in favor of the union. So the union itself is calling it. They're saying that 1,100 people voted for the union versus 1,800 against. There are now challenges being Filed, You know, the union says that Amazon broke the law, which it does seem like that is likely. Um, So what happens next is the National Labor Relations Board will determine whether that's the case and whether there needs to be a rerun of the election. But I think so those are the facts of what happened Um, to your point of the anti unionism of the company. They were waging all-out war on these workers. So it's not really that surprising that they ultimately won that fight. Again, in the United States, uh, companies are given the right to do just about anything to scare workers into not unionizing. So, for example, in this case in Bessemer, not only was Amazon holding these audience meetings with their workers, they were having flyers in the bathroom that said, vote no. Mm -hmm. They were texting their workers a dozen times a day saying, don't vote for the union, the union has said that they retaliated against pro union workers. So they fired them. They threatened to take away their benefits um, if they voted yes, which, you know, that is illegal to directly threaten retaliation. Um, the more common thing, which Amazon also did, is just generally create a sense of fear and mm. exhaustion and confusion and give pe- workers the sense that if they unionize, then their workplace will shut down. And Amazon certainly has incredible power in that community. It is a huge employer in a very impoverished community in Bessemer. Um, And so the sense that if they unionized, they would lose their jobs, I think was a very serious threat. And just to sort of underline the point, I mean, we're not talking about sort of like soft allegations that Amazon was being mean. We're talking about Amazon spending maybe in the millions of dollars on anti-union consultants. That's what Some attorneys have sort of estimated what they would have spent. They were spending thousands of dollars a day on the very best union busters that money can buy. Um, And Amazon does not spend that kind of money unless it's getting results out of it. So these were experts, you know, trained in war, and they won the fight.
0: Where is the established U.S. labor movement in all these struggles? Are Amazon workers getting any support from the major unions, or are they having to start from scratch in a lot of places? I think it's a
1: mix. Certainly, in the past, Amazon workers have expressed to me and have expressed elsewhere some frustration because the organized labor movement in the United States, I think, has largely been afraid to touch Amazon. There have been efforts here and there. There were early efforts before Amazon was the giant you know behemoth it is now. But you know, those efforts failed, and I think a lot of unions said, "We have so much work to do elsewhere." Um, and there are companies that already have a little bit of union presence, and that's what we should focus our resources on. And it, for reasons that make plenty of sense, I think, for each individual union to make that decision. But the ultimate result is that you left a giant enemy completely untouched, mm-hmm. right? So it's this, it's this fortress that hasn't gotten any um, sort of nobody has a foot in the door of unionizing Amazon. Um, And so workers, yes, to your point, have felt, um, I think, very abandoned by organized labor, wondering why these conditions persist, why their bodies are being destroyed, so on and so forth, and unions are nowhere to be found. Um, And so I think that is starting to change a little bit. Obviously, we saw in Bessemer the sort of furthest attempt that any existing union has made in organizing one warehouse. But there are now fitful efforts elsewhere. So I know the Teamsters are involved in trying to organize, particularly in certain warehouses, but also the the delivery drivers that I referenced before, truck drivers, so on. Um, and so unions are starting to build those relationships in bits and pieces. And much of this is not public, right, because it's so early stage. Um, and And at Amazon, you know, having... Sort of surprising the company with these efforts instead of publicizing them is is definitely part of the equation. So people keep it pretty sealed um, in these early efforts. But a lot of Amazon workers are just doing it on their own. Um, We've seen that, for example, there's a particularly organized warehouse in Chicago where the Amazon workers there are organized under the banner of Amazonians United, Mm. um, which is an organization of workers that has started building chapters at various warehouses across the country At other warehouses, such as one in Minneapolis, the workers there work very closely with a worker's center. So not a traditional union, but not completely removed from the labor movement um, as we understand it. But yeah, for now, I mean, the reality is that a lot of Amazon workers, including people I talk to, you know, on a regular basis, are sort of just operating on their own or Mm -hmm. they're operating as part of, say, like a DSA effort. So they have a few comrades that are all working at this warehouse together. Um, but, you know, there's very little sort of um, embedding of existing unions in this workforce.
0: In the context of this kind of resurgence um, of organizing that you're seeing in the U.S. and which to an extent, a lesser extent, is visible in the U.K. as well, I'm wondering what you think are the main factors that are getting in the way of this revival of, of organizing? Is it legislation? Is it, you know, the fact that there are states, right to work states, in which, which is just, just harder to unionize and, and businesses have more power? Is it a more general problem about a kind of lack of class consciousness? Or are there kind of very specific challenges that need to be overcome? And yeah, what, you know, how does that affect the way that we should be as a wider, as the wider left, like strategizing and thinking about this?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing I would say before I give my sort of my view of that is that one thing it isn't is people having the wrong ideas, right? I think a lot of people mm. for, are just using all the attention that the Bessemer campaign got. A lot of people look at that vote result, and I've seen it myself. Lots of people who, you know, aren't obsessed with politics the way we are, just, you know, typical yeah. people say, well, that shows that the workers didn't want a union, And that's that it's, you know, they were presented with two choices and, you know, these are people who support unions. And so they'll say the conclusion to draw from this is that workers in the United States have the wrong ideas. They're too individualistic. Mm. They're only out for themselves. And, you know, it's a shame because, you know, they're they're actually stronger together. I think that is the wrong conclusion to draw from this stuff. I'm certainly in my experience, um, Mm -hmm. probably in yours as well. Um, you know, it's not ideas that really stand in the way of people getting together and organizing. It's generally that there are obstacles to doing so and those ideas nice. kind of follow from them. So in the United States, you know, for example, we have very few programs of you know, pooling risk. And actually, collectively, you know, looking out for each other, right? So there's, you know, the welfare state is very uh, ragged, to say the least, in this country. Mm. Um, there's no sort of universal health care. There's no real things you can point to that say, actually, there, there, it makes sense for us to collectively work together and to actually help each other out, right? And what follows from that is a sense that, okay, if no one's looking out for me, then I do have to get ahead on my own, even in the most conservative areas there have been union wins in the most sort of dogmatically you know whatever ideologically individualistic industries there are collective efforts that win um and those efforts happen and then the ideas change right and so i just don't think it's true that individualism stops people from organizing necessarily usually it's just a, a mix of I think the, the real answer to this problem, which a huge part of it, is the legal system in this country yeah. um, that stops people from ever seeing how collective action can help them. Right. Again, back to the sense of how do you convince people that change is possible? Um, and, you know, in the United States right now, there's a lot of attention on something that's called the PRO Act, which is a labor law reform bill. Um, which, you know, faces a real uphill battle to becoming law, but I think is a really useful educational tool in talking about this. Um, So it's a really comprehensive effort to change just about everything in in the labor law regime that we have that stands in the way of workers organizing. So, you know, for your listeners who might not know the details of that, you know, it ranges from, for example, the fact that the boss, as I said, can mandate employees spend their shift time listening to managers scare them about the union. Um, the fact that the employer has access to the workers 24-7 while unions do not. Unions cannot step on the property. You know, unions do not get the list mm-hmm. until they file for an election, the list of workers. Workers cannot engage in secondary boycotts or strikes, which were a key tool in building solidarity and winning actual you know unions and strong contracts in the early era of of unions in this country, employers face just about no consequences for breaking the law. So, you know, a lot of workers are fired for organizing. That's a very common thing in this country because the consequences are often just that the boss has to put up like a flyer that says, I'm not going to break the law. And that happens maybe like two years down the line Mm -hmm. when they're finally found guilty. Occasionally, they have to pay out some amount of back wages to the fired worker. But actually, the law here is that if the worker found a different job and made the same wages, then the employer owes them nothing. So, wow. you know, all these cases, you know, if Amazon broke the law here under existing law, you know, the 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 union election might be rerun. But what they're going to have to do is put up the state mandated flyer that says you have these mm-hmm. rights. No one reads those flyers. No one reads any kind of flyers in your warehouse. You know, it's just another thing on the wall on the on the um, bulletin board. And so there's really nothing stopping Employers from breaking the law. So the PRO Act includes, you know, major financial fines on on employers who are found to have broken the law. It also, for example, mandates that after one year of contract bargaining, you know, there's a mediation that takes place to get to a contract. So in this country, only about half of unions get to a first contract. Um, So the fight just never ends, right? The employer will do everything in its power to stop you from unionizing, and if you somehow win, the employer then will just kill time at the bargaining table until every pro-union worker leaves the job or loses hope. And then the union gets decertified. This is just how it goes in the United States. Mm. And so it's is, It is a. It's kind of a miracle that anyone unionizes, that anyone yeah. gets a contract. Um, and so the product addresses all of those things. And it's the type of thing that I think the labor movement has really, a lot of it has come together on to try to push or you know, even if it doesn't pass, to sort of show people how many obstacles are in the way And make it very concrete that actually, you know, the issue is not that workers have the wrong ideas. The issue is that everything in this country's legal landscape is tilted in favor of employers who generally, you know, control the government at every level. Um, And Amazon, again, is a great example of
0: that. There's a kind of social democratic argument here, which is that if you raise wages, it boosts consumption and supports growth. And obviously, we've had all these problems, you know, dating back years now of kind of stagnation in the US economy. And there are arguments that, you know, higher consumption because of higher wages would lead to higher investment, etc, etc. And for that reason, some people that we might in the UK refer to as liberals, as opposed to socialists, are on board with kind of changing the law. And I'm not just talking about in the US, like in the UK as well. Do you think that we'll see the kind of moderate democratic establishment get behind some sort of change in labor law and, you know, support the PRO Act and uh, any other legislation that might come through in the wake of that? Or is this something that, you know, is going to remain a pretty marginal argument, even if it has an element of truth to it?
1: I think we're seeing that play out under the Biden administration in a way that I think is interesting and has definitely caught some parts of the left by surprise Um, Mm. in that there is more flexibility in the Democratic Party on that argument. You know, this sort of very straightforwardly kind of liberal sense of, you know, OK, their inequality in this country has caused all these unintended effects or whatever, and it's gotten out of hand. And so we do need to give workers a little more power. So there's a little more willingness to be at least rhetorically pro-union. And, you know, I think for a lot of Democrats, even, you know, there's less willingness to actually go after unions in the way that we saw not even that long ago, you know, under Obama, for example. So I've, I've personally been surprised by Biden's, you know, willingness to, to embrace that, which, again, is not a socialist argument, but is, you know, a pretty traditional argument about we need the consumers to be able to spend money. And so if unions are the only way to ensure higher wages, then that's what we need. The problem is that that doesn't really matter as far as passing the PRO Act or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, with the PRO Act specifically, you know, it passed in the House of Representatives and just about every Democrat is on board you know, at least with supporting this in its current form, though, the problem is that there's the filibuster, which will keep them from ever having to actually enact this, right? So they, I think the calculus now is that it is good if you're a Democrat to at least rhetorically be pro-union. What you're willing to put on the line to fight for any of those priorities is, I think, very non-existent for many of these people. And so I think the question people are facing or grappling with is what does it mean that the Biden administration is is more willing to sort of spend more, um, is less obsessed with the deficit than even Biden himself used to be. You know, he's he's sort of changed on these matters. There's been a rethinking in liberal circles about spending and the importance of the working class having some amount of spending um, ability to spend. But what that actually how far that can go and how much that actually empowers workers rather than sort of does these one time sort of stimulus or things like that, more narrow kind of way of empowering them, I think those are the questions we're, we're sort of dealing with now. Because at the end of the day, you know, if Democrats are sort of rhetorically pro-union, does that actually build up power on a shop floor? It's unclear. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly if the product doesn't pass, the answer is no to most of that. Um, and so I think it's a rethinking of, of maybe the most sort of austerity-driven neoliberalism is no longer the dominant mode of the Democratic Party, But how does that relate to the socialist project? Mm. That is now, I think, the question on the agenda. Because, again, whatever the mainstream of the Democratic Party may be as far as this greater willingness to sort of back workers is not going to build a socialist project, right? There's still a huge distance between those two things.
0: So aside from kind of um, attempts to kind of change labor law, there have been around the world various different attempts to try and regulate Amazon's monopoly power. So things like, you know, preventing it from acting as both a marketplace and a, a seller of its own goods, um, or to kind of, you know, regulate its use of data or whatever. Do you think it's this is actually kind of, again, consonant with a, a trend that you've seen on the US left towards, you know, this very fashionable kind of antitrust enforcement agenda, probably, you know, best manifested by um by candidates like Elizabeth Warren. Um, do you think it's possible for regulators to keep up with Amazon's business model sufficiently to be able to regulate it as a monopoly, or is it just going to kind of carry on evading whatever regulation is 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 put upon it?
1: I mean, I think it pro- the, the sort of glib answer is I think it probably will be able to evade uh, whatever regulations mm. um, the you know the Biden administration or whoever um, sort of mainstream liberalism can place on it. Um, I think there is a there is a real possibility that there will be some incursions on Amazon's ability to just operate as it's currently operating. There is, like you said, sort of a growing popularity to these antitrust arguments about Amazon that might break up certain parts of the company or otherwise, you know, as you said, sort of put some level of regulation on, for example, the surveillance data or stop them from selling this surveillance data to the police, things like that. But Amazon is so big, right? And it has so much money. And the reality is that it does not have the sort of shackles to to evasion that I, you know, and it's more flexible than I think regulators ever can be. There's also the reality that even as this growing sentiment exists, even within the Biden administration that, you know, is starting to at least consider the possibility, again, all of these modifiers here, all these sort of. It's possible. It's possible. It's not happening uh, that it's going to be subject to antitrust regulation. There's still huge and strong ties between these companies and those serving in office. You know, even Amazon has very close ties to people within the Department of Justice under the Biden administration. It still has, you know, a, a very real revolving door in operation between the public sector and the higher ups in its company. And so it is, you know, it, I think it's kept well aware of these efforts um, I think it's given a lot of um, advance notice when these efforts are going forward. And I think the reality is that Amazon has so many people being employed by it as lobbyists and uh-huh. um, who, again, are sort of informally, if not formally, tied to the very people prosecuting it in theory that might prosecute it. You know, I think it's just unrealistic to say that Amazon is ever going to be, you know, actually defeated. This is, in fact, the business model that capitalism relies upon. If you don't change, the economic system, you are always going to have companies like Amazon, even as, you know, one of their arms is cut off, you know, another one grows because the profit motive never gives it a rest. Right. And so I think, you know, this is a bigger question of what kind of an economy do we actually want going forward? Because forever sort of lunging at Amazon, I think will never actually get us to a place that stops companies like Amazon from forming again and again. Right. Um, And so I think Amazon you know, may be subject to real to real scrutiny and even possible setbacks for the company going forward at the regulatory level. Um, but the conditions that create Amazon's and other companies that, you know, might not be as egregiously sort of monopolistic as Amazon bars are still just as you know bad for workers, bad for people and capturing political power. I think those companies will continue to exist.
0: What's your view on why Bezos has decided to step down? And do you think that he's going to now just become one of those kind of people that is constantly in and around the halls of power, trying to look after Amazon's interests in legislatures, not just in the US, but all around the world?
1: I won't pretend to know what's
0: in uh, Jeff Bezos's
1: heart. Um, I mean, I think it's important to note that just because he's stepping down as CEO does not mean he is leaving Amazon. Um, he is continuing to occupy a very high position, one that has a lot of you know oversight and power in the company. And of course, Amazon, like many of these companies, you know, is made in the image of its founders. So there is, well, Bezos doesn't have the sort of celebrity and, and I think hero worship that like an Elon Musk has, at least in the United mm. States. Within the company, he does have that sort of a, a mythos around him. You know, maybe, maybe it's not the truth, but one thing that Bezos has always been clear on, at least in what, in what he says, is that what he's really interested in is colonizing space. Um, mm. That sounds insane to even say out loud. Um, <laughs> but he has said this since high school, that that's what he wants to do. Um, and so, you know, that's what he said in his resignation letter, is that he's going to focus on that company, you know, those efforts that he started. Um, and I believe him that he is going to try to enjoy his infinite basically infinite wealth, um, by, you know, doing things that have never been done before in, you know, galaxies far, far away. Um, but I think at the end of the day, you know, someone like Bezos can, can stroll into any hall of power around the world and there's no way he's going to give up that ability. Right. And just, you know, go quietly, uh, into, Um. into retirement in his house or something. Um, I think he has a lot of work left to do. Um, I think he feels like he's under attack unfairly right now, and there's no way he's not going to put up a fight. I mean, that's how Amazon got where it is, um, by never backing down, never letting people, you know, live their lives comfortably as workers. Um, and so I think it is still day one for Jeff Bezos, and he has, you know, there are challenges in France, there are challenges across Europe, Eastern Europe. Um, by workers, there's certainly this growing challenge in the United States around Amazon's working conditions, as well as the antitrust stuff. And and there's just no way Bezos is going to let his legacy be imperiled by any of that. I think he's completely mm. um, just as committed to fighting back as ever. I would say also, I wrote about this recently, but he he issued his final letter to shareholders earlier this month. Um, and people, I think liberals made a lot of noise of you know about it because he said. He mentioned the effort in Bessemer and he said that, you know, basically the company needs to do better by its workers um, and he kinda, he sees you and he hears you um, and he's committed to making Amazon the best workplace on the planet. Uh, and I think a lot of people, you know, like I said, liberals and sort of the business press were very surprised by this. But to me, you know, it reads as is what every boss does during a union drive. They say, you know, don't organize, just trust me. I have it. You have to place your trust in me. And I know I've made some mistakes, but if you just give me one more chance, you know, we'll do something better. So while some saw that, I think as Bezos getting soft and sort of changing his approach, I think I see it as he's getting ready to continue waging war. And so if he can do that without such a spotlight on him, it's probably more power to him, really.
0: We've spoken a lot so far about Amazon in the US um, and to a lesser extent in Europe, but obviously this is a company that has a presence in so many territories all over the world um, and has a workforce that you know spans the globe as well. To what extent have there been successful efforts to organize those workers in different parts of Amazon's supply chain, both in different countries and also, you know, say between warehouses and delivery drivers and office workers? And, you know, do you think that that's that's a viable strategy moving forward? It would obviously be a kind of huge threat to Amazon's business model, but also a really empowering fight for workers.
1: Yeah, I mean... Grace, you might know more about the details of these efforts in Europe than I do, honestly, Um, because obviously, as I said, with Amazon, it's so hard to keep track of everything, right? It's such a massive workforce, but there's no way around the need for international coordination and collaboration among workers. I mean, this is sort of the critique of the strategy. I think it's wrongheaded to say it's wrong to, you know, hold a union election in one warehouse. Um, as if that was the plan was just to organize one. But the critique is that you can't organize just one warehouse, right? Because Amazon has shown it's very good at either rerouting orders around places that have sort of workplace organizing going on or shuttering those facilities, so on and so forth, uh, making those workers redundant, right? And so the truth to that is that it's, you know, you absolutely do have to organize everywhere at Amazon, In Europe, you know, there's been there's a lot more coordination because there are existing unions within these warehouses. So I think the infrastructure Mm. is sort of already a bit more existent. Um, Not that those efforts have, you know, conquered Amazon. I think they're a useful indicator for people in countries where there aren't unionized Amazon workers of what the fight ahead looks like. You know, so, for example, I know. You know, Italy had workers strike at I think fifteen or so warehouses recently. Amazon warehouses. There's something like three hundred Amazon facilities in Europe, um, and there's some ties being built. Right, I know the Unite Global Union, for example, sort of helps coordinate those efforts. Um, but the reality is that you know, even in say a country like France, where there you know are existing unions that you know have some bargaining power with Amazon you know, if they get too militant or too out of line, Amazon does what it did there during the pandemic, which was, you know, threatened to shut down all the warehouses, Um, even when the courts in the country had sided with the unions about the the dangerous working conditions during the pandemic. You know, Amazon, at the end of the day, you know, doesn't want to give an inch on these things. And so it keeps fighting even where it has to legally recognize unions. Um, And so those efforts, I think, are growing and they're encouraging, even if, again, they're slower than, they need to be or we would want them to be. Right. And so I think, you know, there are starting to be networks in place that take, you know, I've been to meetings where it's Polish warehouse workers at it from Amazon talking to Amazon workers who, you know, are laboring in Chicago or in um, the Inland Empire in California. Um, and so those ties are growing. I mean, and it's rightly so, you know, if the company is international, then so must the workers be. And I think, again, you know, while it gets a lot of attention because it's a U.S. company and there's, you know, something like almost a thousand facilities of different sorts between the the warehouses and the sortation centers and so on in the United States, you know, there's around 300 in Europe. There's around 300 in India and the company is trying to build out its operations in South and Central America and so on and so forth. Um, And so as those efforts grow, I think workers, too, have to keep growing and strengthening these networks. And, you know, fortunately, the you know, as the saying goes in the labor movement, the boss is the best organizer. And so at the end of the day, despite all of the differences between, say, someone who's working in an Italian Amazon warehouse and one in New York, they have a lot of things in common, too, Um, and they have a shared interest and they also can give each other sort of advice about what to expect and help each other fight back. Um, And so I certainly support those efforts. And I think everybody on the left needs to prioritize things like that, because there's just no way that even if you organized, you know, in the United States, um, that
0: that would help bring the company in globally. There's just you have to do it everywhere. Thank you so much, Alex Press, for joining me on this brilliant episode of A World to Win. Thank you so much for having me.